Hello, and welcome to the Musings on Theosophy podcast. Our first episode will focus on karma, but first, let's define theosophy so that we can put the topic in a larger context. A brief definition is that theosophy is a modern name for the ancient universal wisdom that is the heritage of all humanity. It can be thought of as the synthesis of science, religion, and philosophy. While these are often seen as incompatible, we'll have plenty of time in this series to contemplate how that's a misconception. No science is complete that leaves out any department of nature, and religion must allow inquirers to exercise their own judgment and not blindly depend on the assumed revelation of external authority. These podcasts are entitled Musings because the goal is not to lecture, but to present some very specific ideas to you to consider and to draw your own conclusions. Theosophy is in the world to present the means by which each person can acquire knowledge for oneself and to recognize that there is much more to existence than our senses can see, hear, touch, or taste, or that science is yet to prove. Theosophy was represented to the world in the 19th century through the writings of Helena P. Blavatsky, who showed the common basis for all the religions and philosophies of the past. She referenced an extraordinary number of ancient texts and showed how the ancient wisdom was needed to correct the misconceptions of the science of her day. She folks fun at those she finds narrow-minded or inaccurate. Blavatsky's suppositions are rarely of her own invention, but are based on her own vast study and backed up with the works of others. For several reasons, theosophy is far from an easy study. Aside from the language, which can be challenging, the concepts themselves are often at odds with the common assumptions of our time. Fortunately, we have the very accessible writings of William Q. Judge to help us understand topics such as karma, which we are about to review. If we find ourselves confused, it's time to slow down. Take it a bit at a time and even listen or read it again. It can also help to discuss these ideas in a group. There are lodges all over the world for that purpose. There are also online live classes in which anyone can participate or just listen for free. Okay, let's start on our topic today, karma, with some writings by William Q. Judge, Blavatsky's colleague and co-worker, who wrote many articles based on the teachings for a magazine called The Path. Aphorisms on Karma The following, among others not yet used, were given to me by teachers, among them H.P. Blavatsky. Some were written others communicated in other ways. To me, they were declared to be from manuscripts not now accessible to the general public. Each one was submitted for my judgment and reason, and just as they, aside from any authority, proved themselves to my reason after serious consideration of them, so I hope they will gain the approval of those my fellow workers to whom I now publish them. William Q. Judge Aphorisms 1. There is no karma unless there is a being to make it or feel its effects. 2. Karma is the adjustment of effects flowing from causes, during which the being upon whom and through whom 
that adjustment is affected experiences pain or pleasure. Three, karma is the undeviating and unerring tendency in the universe to restore equilibrium, and it operates incessantly. Four, the apparent stoppage of this restoration to equilibrium is due to the necessary adjustment of disturbance at some other spot, place, or focus, which is visible only to the yogi, to the sage, or the perfect seer. There is therefore no stoppage, but only a hiding from view. Five, karma operates on all things and beings from the minutest conceivable atom up to Brahma. Proceeding in the three worlds of men, gods, and the elemental beings, no spot in the manifested universe is exempt from its sway. Six, karma is not subject to time, and therefore he who knows what is the ultimate division of time in this universe knows karma. Seven, for all other men, karma is in its essential nature unknown and unknowable. Eight, but its action may be known by calculation from cause to effect and this calculation is possible because the effect is wrapped up in and is not succeedent to the cause. 9. The karma of this earth is the combination of the acts and thoughts of all beings of every grade which were concerned in the preceding Mahavantra or evolutionary stream from which ours flows. 10. And those beings include lords of power and holy men, as well as weak and wicked ones. The period of the earth's duration is greater than that of any entity or race upon it. 11. Because the karma of this earth and its races began too far back for human minds to reach, an inquiry into its beginning is useless and profitless. 12. Karmic causes already set in motion must be allowed to sweep on until exhausted. But this permits no man to refuse to help his fellows in every sentient being. 13. The effects may be counteracted or mitigated by the thoughts and acts of oneself or of another, and then the resulting effects represent the combination and interaction of the whole number of causes involved in producing the effects. 14. In the life of worlds, races, nations, and individuals, karma cannot act unless there is an appropriate instrument provided for its action. 15. And until such appropriate instrument is found, that karma related to it remains unexpended. 16. While a man is experiencing karma in the instrument provided, his other unexpended karma is not exhausted through other beings or means, but is held reserved for future operation. An elapse of time during which no operation of that karma is felt causes no deterioration in its force or change in its nature. 17. The appropriateness of an instrument for the operation of karma consists in the exact connection and relation of the karma with the body, mind, 
intellectual and psychical nature acquired for use by the ego in any life. 18. Every instrument used by any ego in any life is appropriate to the karma operating through it. 19. Changes may occur in the instrument during one life so as to make it appropriate for a new class of karma. And this may take place in two ways. A. Through intensity of thought and the power of a vow. And B. Through natural alliterations due to complete exhaustion of old causes. 20. As body and mind and soul have each a power of independent action, any one of these may exhaust, independently of the other, some karmic causes more remote from or nearer to the time of their inception than those operating through other channels. 21. Karma is both merciful and just. Mercy and justice are only opposite poles of a single whole. And mercy without justice is not possible in the operations of karma. That which man calls mercy and justice is defective, errant, and impure. 22. Karma may be of three sorts. A. Presently operative in this life through the appropriate instruments. B. That which is being made or stored up to be exhausted in the future. C. Karma held over from past life or lives and not operating yet because inhibited by inappropriateness of the instrument in use by the ego or by the force of karma now operating. 23. Three fields of operation are used in each being by karma. A. The body and the circumstances. B. The mind and the intellect. C. The psychic and astral planes. 24. Held over karma or present karma may each, or both at once, operate in all of the three fields of karmic operation at once, or in either of those fields a different class of karma from that using the others may operate at the same time. 25. Birth into any sort of body and to obtain the fruits of any sort of karma is due to the preponderance of the line of karmic tendency. 26. The sway of karmic tendency will influence the incarnation of an ego or any family of egos for three lives at least when measures of repression, elimination, or counteraction are not adopted. 27. Measures taken by an ego to repress tendency, eliminate defects, and to counteract by setting up different causes will alter the sway of karmic tendency and shorten its influence in accordance with the strength or weakness of the efforts expended in carrying out the measures adopted. 28. No man but a sage or true seer can judge another's karma. Hence, while each receives his deserts, appearances may deceive. And birth into poverty or heavy trial may not be punishment for bad karma. For egos continually incarnate 
in poor surroundings where they experience difficulties and trials, which are for the discipline of the ego and the result in strength, fortitude, and sympathy. 29. Race karma influences each unit in the race through the law of distribution. National karma operates in the members of the nation by the same law, more concentrated. Family karma governs only with a nation where families have been kept pure and distinct. For in any nation where there is mixture of family, as obtains in each Kali Yuga period, family karma is in general distributed over a nation. But even at such periods, some families remain coherent for long periods, and then the members feel the sway of family karma. The word family may include several smaller families. 30. Karma operates to produce cataclysms of nature by cantantination through the mental and astral planes of being. A cataclysm may be traced to an immediate physical cause, such as internal fire and atmospheric disturbance. But these have been brought on by the disturbance created through the dynamic power of human thought. 31. Egos who have no karmic connection with a portion of the globe where a cataclysm is coming on are kept without the latter's operation in two ways. A. By repulsion acting on their inner nature and B. By being called and warned by those who watch the progress of the world. Path, March, 1893. Men, Karmic Agents The above is the title of an essay in the TPS series by Alexander Fullerton, in which he treats the question solely in regard to whether we should take punitive or reformatory measures with those of our fellow beings who transgress in those respects in which we so often see culpability. In that essay, he has said a great deal that cannot be controverted, from the general rules prevailing, but there are other considerations, and also other ways of understanding the term, quote, karmic agent. For this HBB had a regular and technical meaning under which the karmic agent is at once removed from the ordinary general mass to which the essay in the siftings has reference. A statement of the law of karma, of course, makes not only men karmic agents, but also of every other being in the cosmos, inasmuch as they are all under the law of action and reaction, and, with the same law, go to make cosmos what it is. Taken as a unit in the general mass of men, each man is a karmic agent in the above sense, just as each horse and dog, or the rain or the sun are. So in our daily actions, even the smallest, whether we are conscious or not of the effect, we are such agents. A single word of ours may have an influence for a lifetime upon another. It may cause once more the fire of passion to blaze up, or bring about a great change for good. We may be the means of another's being late for an appointment, and thus save him from the calamity, or the reverse, and so on infinitely. But all this is very different from the technical sense I have referred to. 
and which might be taken to the sense of the title of the article thus specially removed from the general class. The special sense is in this. A karmic agent is one who concentrates more rapidly than is usual the lines of influence that bring about events sometimes in a strange and subtle way. Of these there are two classes. The first, those among the mass who, those among the mass who, from the lives they have led in the past, arrive in this one gifted or cursed with a power unknown to themselves. The second, those who by training have the power or rather have become concentrators of the forces and know it to be the case. Of these are the adepts, both great and small. An instance of this may be found in the life of Zanoni, as related by Bueller Leighton. It is observed that those who met Zanoni soon showed in their affairs very great changes, and although Leighton's son has said, out of his imagination, I think, that his father never intended what theosophists say he did by the book, there is no doubt that Bueller meant to teach and illustrate the law. In Patanjali's Yoga Aphorisms, it is also spoken of in the 36th Aphorism, second book, thus American edition. Quote, when veracity is complete, the yogi becomes the focus for the karma resulting from all works, good and bad. Unquote. In the Bombay edition, quote, when veracity is complete, he is the receptacle of the fruit of works. It is a well-known tradition in India called by the civilized West a superstition that if one should meet and talk with an adept, his karma, good and bad, would come to a head more quickly than usual, and thus that the adept could confer a boon, letting the evil pass and increasing the good. I have conversed with those who asserted that they had by chance met yogis in the forest with whom they talked, telling them that some dear friend was sick unto death and then on returning home found that the sickness had all gone at the very time of the conversation. And others met such men, who told them that the meeting would bring on the opposite by reason of quick concentration, but that even that would benefit, as it would, as it were, eat up much unpleasant karma, once and for all. Of this class of traditions is the story of the centurion's daughter and Jesus of Nazareth. And HPB held that there were many people in the world engaged in its affairs who are, without knowing it, karmic agents in this special sense, and continually bring to others good and bad sudden effects which otherwise would have to come slowly to pass, spread over many more days or years, and showing in a number of small events instead of in one. If this theory is true, we have here also the explanation of the superstition of the evil eye, which is only a corrupt form of the knowledge that there are such karmic agents among us who by looking at others draw together very quickly effects that without the presence of the karmic agent might never have been noticed because of their taking more time to transpire. But if we follow too strictly the theory that men are karmic agents for punishment or reformation of others, Many mistakes will be made, and much bad feeling engendered in others, making it inevitable 
that we who cause these feelings must receive some day, in this life or another, the exact reaction. And on the other hand, we should not shrink from the duty to relieve pain and sorrow if we can, for it is both cowardice and conceit to say that we will not help this or that man because it is his karma to suffer. In the face of suffering, it is our good karma to relieve it, if in our power. We are ignorant at best and cannot tell what will be the next result of what we are about to do or to suggest. Hence, it is wiser not to assume too often and on too small occasions to be the reformers or punishers as agents for karma of those who seem to offend. D.K. Path, March, 1892 Is heredity a puzzle? A well-known writer in Harper's Magazine said lately, heredity is a puzzle. He then proceeded, quote, the race is linked together in a curious tangle so that it is almost impossible to fix the responsibility. We try to study this problem with our asylums and prisons and we get a great many interesting facts but they are too conflicting to guide legislation. The difficulty is to relieve a person of responsibility for the sins of his ancestors without relieving him of responsibility for his own sins. This is the general view. Heredity is a puzzle and will always remain one so long as the laws of karma and reincarnation are not admitted and taken into account in all these investigations. Nearly all of these writers admit except those who say they do not know, the theological view that each human being is a new creation, a new soul projected into life on this earth. This is quite logical inasmuch as they assert that we are only mortal and are not spirits. The religious investigators admit we are spirits, but go no further except to assume the same special creation. Hence, when they come to the question of heredity, it is a very serious matter. It becomes a puzzle, especially to those who investigate heredity and are trying to decide upon whom responsibility ought to rest. While they know nothing of karma or reincarnation, and it is hinted at that there is necessity for legislation on the subject. That is to say, if we have a case of a murderer to consider, and we find that he has come of a race or family of murderers, the result of which is to make him a being who cannot prevent himself from committing murder, we have to conclude that, if this is due to heredity, he cannot in the same sense be responsible. Take the case of the tribes or family or a sect of tongues in India, whose aim in life was to put out people of the world. Their children would of necessity inherit this tendency. It is something like a cat and a bird. It is the nature of the cat to eat the bird, and you cannot blame it. Thus we should not be driven to pass a law making an exception in the case of such unfortunate persons. Then we should be met by the possibility of false testimony being adduced upon the trial of the criminal, going to show that he came under the law. This possibility is so great that it is not likely such a law will ever be passed. 
so that even if the legal and scientific world were able to come to any conclusion establishing the great force of heredity, it would be barren of results unless the truth of karma and reincarnation were admitted. For in the absence of these, no law and hence no remedy for the supposed injustice to be done to the irresponsible criminals could be applied. I am stating, not what I think ought to be done, but what will be the inevitable end of investigation into heredity without the aid of the other two great laws. If these two doctrines should be accepted by the supposed legislators, it would follow that no such law as I have averted would ever be put on the books. For the reason that, once karma and reincarnation are admitted, the responsibility of each individual is made greater than before. Not only is he responsible even under his hereditary tendency, but in a wider sense, he is also responsible for the great injury he does the state through the future effect of his life, that effect acting on those who were born as his descendants. There is no great puzzle in heredity as a law from the standpoint of karma and reincarnation, although, of course, the details of the working of it will be complicated and numerous. I know that some theosophists have declared that it puzzles them, but that is because it is a new idea, very different from those instilled into us during our education as youths and our association with our fellows as adults. None of the observed and admitted facts in respect to heredity should be ignored, nor need they be left out of sight by a theosophist. We are bound to admit that leanings and peculiarities are transmitted from father to son and to all along down the line of descent. In one case, we may find a mental trait, in another, a physical peculiarity, and in a grandson we shall often see the bodily habits of his remote ancestor reproduced. The question is then asked, how am I to be held responsible for such strange inclinations when I never knew this man from whom I inherit them? As theories go, at this day, it would be impossible to answer this question. For if I have come from the bosom of God as a new soul, or if what is called soul or intelligence is the product of this body I inhabit and which I had no hand in producing, or if I have come from far distant spheres unconnected with this earth, to take up this body with whose generation I was not concerned, it would be the grossest injustice for me to be held responsible for what it may do. It seems to me that from the premises laid down, there can be no escape from this conclusion. And unless our sociologists and political economists and legislators emit the doctrines of karma and reincarnation, they will have to pass laws to which I have referred. We shall then have a code which may be called of limitations of responsibility of criminals in cases of murder and other crimes. But the whole difficulty arises from the inherited transmitted habit in the Western mind of looking at effects and mistaking them for causes, and of considering the instruments or means through and by means of which laws of nature work, as causes. Heredity has been looked at, or is beginning to be, as the cause of crime and of virtue. 
It is not a cause, but only the means or instrument of the production of the effect, the cause being hidden deeper. It seems just as erroneous to call heredity a cause of either good or bad acts as it is to call the merely mortal brain or body the cause of mind or soul. Ages ago, the Hindu sages admitted that the body did not produce the mind, but that there was what they called the mind of the mind. Or as we might put it, the intelligence operating above and behind the mere brain matter. And they enforced their argument by numerous illustrations. As for instance, that the eye could not see even when in itself a perfect instrument unless the mind behind it was acting. We can easily prove this from cases of sleepwalkers. They walk with their eyes open so that the retina must, as usual, receive the impinging images. Yet although you stand before their eyes, they do not see you. It is because the intelligence is disjoined from the other words perfect optical instrument. Hence we admit that the body is not the cause of mind. The eyes are not the cause of sight, but that the body and the eye are instruments by means of which the cause operates. Karma and reincarnation include the premise that the man is a spiritual entity who is using the body for some purpose. From remote times, the sages state that he, this spiritual being, is using the body which he has acquired by karma. Hence the responsibility cannot be placed upon the body, nor primarily upon those who brought forth the body, but upon the man himself. This works perfect justice, for while a man in one body is suffering his just deserts, the other man, or souls, who produce such bodies are also compelled to make compensation in other bodies. As the compensation is not made at any human and imperfect tribunal, but to nature itself, which includes every part of it, it consists in the restoration of the harmony or equilibrium which has been disturbed. The necessity for recognizing the law from the standpoint of ethics arises from the fact that until we are aware that such is the law, we will never begin to perform such acts and think such thoughts as will tend to bring about the required alterations in the astral light needed to start a new order of thoughts and influences. These new influences will not, of course, come to have full effect and sway on those who initiate them, but will operate on their descendants and will also prepare a new future age in which those very persons who set up the new current shall participate. Hence it is not in any sense a barren, unrewarded thing. For we ourselves come back again in some other age to reap the fruit of the seed we had sown. The impulse must be set up, and we must be willing to wait for the result. The potter's wheel continues to revolve when the potter has withdrawn his foot, and so the present revolving wheel will turn for a while until the impulse is spent. Path, November 1888 The Moral Law of Compensation By an ex-Asiatic Footnote W.Q. Judge, F.T.S. For thou shalt be in league with the stones of the field, and the beasts of the field shall be at peace with thee. Job, chapter 5, verse 23, Christian Bible. 
As a Western theosophist, I would like to present to my Indian brethren a few thoughts upon what I conceive to be the operation of the law of compensation in part, or, to put it more clearly, upon the operation of one branch of this law. It seems undeniable that this law is the most powerful, and the one having the most numerous and complicated ramifications of all the laws with which we have to deal. This it is that makes so difficult for a human spirit the upward progress after which we are all striving. And it is often forced upon me that it is this law which perpetuates the world with its delusions, its sadness, its illusions. And that if we could but understand it so as to avoid its operation, the nirvana for the whole human family would be an accomplished fact. In a former number, a respected brother from Ceylon, speaking with authority, showed us how to answer the question so often asked, Why do we see a good man eating the bread of poverty and the wicked dwelling in riches? And why so often is a good man cast down from prosperity to despair, and a wicked man, after a period of sorrow and hardship, made to experience for the balance of his life, nothing but success and prosperity. He replied that our acts in any one period of existence were like the arrow shot from the bow, acting upon us in the next life and producing our rewards and punishments. So that to accept this explanation, as we must, it is, of course, necessary to believe in reincarnation. As far as he went, he was very satisfactory but he did not go into the subject as thoroughly as his great knowledge would permit. It is to be hoped that he will favor us with further essays upon the same subject. I have not yet seen anywhere stated the rationale of the operation of this law, how and why it acts in any particular case. To say that the reviling of the righteous man will condemn one to the life of a beggar in the next existence is definite enough in statement, but it is put forth without a reason, and unless we accept these teachings blindly, we cannot believe such consequences would follow. To appeal to our minds, there should be a reason given, which shall be at once plain and reasonable. There must be some law for this particular case, otherwise the statement cannot be true. There must occur from the force of the revilement, the infraction of some natural regulation, the production of some discord in the spiritual world which has for a consequence the punishment of beggary in the succeeding existence of the reviler. The only other reason possible of statement is that it is so ordered. But such a reason is not a reason at all because no theosophist will believe that any punishment, save that which man himself inflicts, is ordered. As this world is a world produced by law, moved by law, and governed by the natural operation of laws, which need no one to operate them, but which invariably unerringly operate themselves, it must follow that any punishment suffered in this way is not suffered through any order, but is suffered because the natural law 
operates itself. And further, we are compelled to accept this view, because to believe that it was ordered would infer the existence of some particular person, mind, will, or intelligence to order it, which for one instant no one will believe who knows that this world was produced and is governed by the operation of number, weight, and measure, with harmony over and above all. So then we should know in what manner the law operates, which condemns the reviler of the righteous man to beggary in his next existence. That knowledge once gained, we may be able to find for ourselves the manner and power of placating, as it were, this terrible monster of compensation by performing some particular acts which shall in some way be a restoration of the harmony which we have broken, if perchance we have unconsciously or inadvertently committed the sin. Let us now imagine a boy born of wealthy parents, but not given proper intelligence. He is, in fact, called an idiot. But instead of being a mild idiot, he possesses great malice which manifests itself in his tormenting insects and animals at every opportunity. He lives to be, say, nineteen, and has spent his years in the malicious, although idiotic, torment of unintelligent, defenseless animal life. He has thus hindered many a spirit in its upward march, and has beyond doubt inflicted pain and caused a moral discord. This fact of its idiocy is not a restoration of the discord. Every animal that he tortured had its own particular elemental spirit, and so had every flower he had broken pieces. What did they know of his idiocy, and what did they feel after the torture but revenge? And had they a knowledge of his idiocy, being unreasoning beings, they could not see in it any excuse for his acts. He dies at nineteen, and after the lapse of years is reborn in another nation, perchance another age, into a body possessing more than average intelligence. He is no longer an idiot, but a sensible, active man, who now has a chance to regenerate the spirit given to every man, without the chains of idiocy about it. What is to be the result of the evil deeds of his previous existence? Are they to go unpunished? I think not. But how are they to be punished? And if the compensation comes, in what manner does the law operate upon him? To me, there seems but one way. That is through the discord produced in the spirits of those unthinking beings which he had tortured during those nineteen years. But how? In this way. In the agony of their torture, these beings turn their eyes upon their torturer, and dying, his spiritual picture through the excess of their pain, together with that pain and the desire for revenge, were photographed, so to speak, upon their spirits. For in no other way could they have the memory of him. And when he became a disembodied spirit, they clung to him until he was reincarnated, when they were still with him like barnacles on a ship. They can now only see through his eyes, and their revenge consists in precipitating themselves down to his glance on any matter that he may engage in. 
thus attaching themselves to it for the purpose of dragging it down to disaster. This leads to the query of what is meant by these elementals precipitating themselves down his glance. The ancients taught that the astral light, akasha, is projected from the eyes, the thumbs, and the palms of the hands. Now as these elementals exist in the astral light, they will be able to see only through those avenues of human organism, which are used by the astral light in traveling from the person. The eyes are the most convenient. So when this person directs his glance on anything or person, the astral light goes out in that glance, and through it those elementals see that which he looks upon. And so also, if he would magnetize a person, the elementals will project themselves from his hands and eyes upon the subject magnetized and do it injury. Well then, our reincarnated idiot engages in a business which requires his constant surveillance. The elementals go with him and throwing themselves upon everything he directs cause him continued disaster. But one by one they are caught up again out of the orbit of necessity into the orbit of probation in this world. And at last, all are gone. Whereupon he finds success in all he does and has his chance again to reap eternal life. He finds the realization of the words of Job quoted at the head of this article. He is in league with the stones of the field, and the beasts of the field are at peace with him. These words were also penned ages ago by those ancient Egyptians who knew all things. Having walked in the secret paths of wisdom, which no fowl knoweth, and the vulture's eyes hath not seen, they discovered those hidden laws, one within the other, like the wheels of Ezekiel, which govern the universe. There is no other reasonable explanation of the passage quoted than the theory faintly outlined in the foregoing poor illustration. And I only offer it as a possible solution or answer to the question as to what is the rationale of the operation of the moral law of compensation in that particular case, of which I go so far as to say that I think I know a living illustration. But it will not furnish an answer for the case of the punishment of reviling of a righteous man. I would earnestly ask that the learned friends of the editor of the Theosophist to give the explanation and also hint to us how in this existence we may act so as to mitigate the horrors of our punishment and come as near as may be to a league with the stones and the beasts of the field. Theosophist, October 1881 Perhaps you find it worth contemplating what our world would be like today if ideas like karma and reincarnation were part of more people's lives. Does knowing more about karma give you a broader perspective on your own life? Lots of questions. I always feel like I need these writings to seep into my own consciousness. So for today, let's leave it there. I don't want to impose my own ideas upon you, but Instead, give you the freedom to contemplate or 
Not contemplate, as you see fit. If you like William Q. Judge's articles on karma, the ones you've just heard, and a bunch more are all bundled together as a downloadable book on Amazon and an audiobook on Amazon and Audible. Just search the title, Karma According to the Secret Doctrine. I'll be back with another edition soon. We'll be looking at Theosophy's view on reincarnation. Because it has such a strong relationship to karma, it's a logical part two to our discussion today. I think after that, we'll delve into subjects that are more scientific or about teachings on some of the lost societies of our own planet. Uh-huh. Not the fantasy science fiction it's most commonly perceived to be, and very interesting. For now, I wish you the very best in your life's pursuits, and I hope that you will encounter honesty and virtue in others and be able to reflect it back. I've been your host, Marlon Braccia, for the very first Musings on Theosophy podcast. It's been generously funded by The Theosophy Company, who publishes books like Blavatsky's The Secret Doctrine and Isis Unveiled, Judge's Superb Ocean of Theosophy, and many more. For more information on Theosophy, we invite you to visit any of the lodges around the world or to visit us on the United Lodge of Theosophists website at ult la.org. That's U-L-T-L-A.org. Bye for now.